Well, I've been getting the same question ever since I got back in the country. And for those who don't know me, Stacy, and my oldest son, Noah, went on a 10-day trip to Israel by ourselves. And what do you think the question is that I've been getting since I got back? How was your trip? Yeah. <laughs> and it's a really good question. I love that you guys are interested. So what I did is I thought I'd just kind of do a debrief today, a quick kind of, could someone, Bradley, would you mind turning the front lights off up there? It's one of those switches by that black fan. That way everybody can see. You guys want to hear a little bit about our trip and where we went, what we saw, just real quick. Um, and that way I can answer all your questions in one time. Uh, not that I don't mind, uh, don't care about your questions, but. Well, we landed in, in Ben Gurion Airport, you know, day one, and we took the train to Jerusalem, and we spent about three nights in Jerusalem seeing the various biblical sites. We, we got in on a Friday afternoon, and so then we spent, we did Shabbat dinner at this hostel we were staying at, and then we did Shabbat, we, we spent Shabbat um, exploring the old city, and we went down to the hotel and, and prayed at the hotel at the Western Wall. Um, and then we saw some of the biblical sites uh, around Jerusalem. But after about three days of being in Jerusalem, uh, we rented a car and uh, we drove it north. So Jerusalem is right here. And we drove, it, we drove our rental car north along the Jordan River Valley right there. There's Highway 90 through the West Bank. And uh, we got up to the Galilee. We drove up into Tiberias, actually. And, um, and there, right before we got into Tiberias, we visited the Jordan River. I had never uh, done a baptism or anything in the Jordan River. I've never swam in the Jordan River before. So that was on my list to this trip, is to take Stacy Noah to the Jordan River. I had always seen it, but I'd never been in the water before. And uh, it was kind of funny, we got there about 10 minutes before this place closed at Yard of Neats, is one of, the, one of the baptism sites, the proposed baptism sites of, of where Yeshua would have been baptized by John the Baptist. But it doesn't really matter. But, um, we went there about 10 minutes before they closed, and uh, we didn't want to pay the shekels of rent the white robe thing, and so we just kind of snuck around the side and just plunged in the water real quick and, and swam around a little bit and, and, uh, and did like a mikvah or whatever, and, and that was nice. The water was really pretty. It was green, an emerald green, um, and it was kind of a, a quick uh, dive in the Jordan River there, but it was neat. Uh, and then we, we went to Tiberius, and we checked into our apartment in Tiberius, and Tiberius is um, an ancient city with really narrow roads. So you can picture Gabe used to driving in Alabama with a rental car, now driving a narrow road Tiberius with, with a bunch of uh, people that are like, who is this guy on the road, and why is he driving so slowly? Um, but then we hit a lot of biblical sites around Tiberius and that area along the Galilee as we worked our way north of the Sea of Galilee right here, the Kinnerets. And then we... Um, we you know, hit all these biblical sites like Capernaum. We went, to, uh, we went to, not this day, but we went to Chorazin a different day. We went to the Mountain of Beatitudes where uh, it's traditionally believed that Yeshua would have given the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we went to something I had not been to before was the Arbel Cliffs, which are really beautiful cliffs up in this valley and uh, steep cliffs. And there's all these ancient, um, ancient ruins up in there and people actually dwelled in these cliffs and there's caves. We went to the Arbel Cliffs, and then um, from there we continued north, way up here, and you can see right along the Lebanese border, about as far north as you can go, and we got into a, uh, a cabin that we had rented for a couple of nights in a little town, a little Moshav, as it's called, uh, in the town of remote Naphtali. And Israel is kind of divided right here in the north, there's the Holda Valley, which is where the Jordan River kind of originates and all the headwaters of the Jordan River. This is the Holda Valley. And then you go to the west of the Holda Valley, you're up in the hills of Naphtali. It's very hilly, um, kind of big rolling hills. I'm talking real big hills. And then you go, if you go east of the Holda Valley, you're in the Golan Heights. And the Golan Heights are even higher. And it's like this, once you get up into the Golan, it is like a big, even plateau that goes across and you have you can see for miles and miles from on top of the Golan Heights. Um, so we were up here in remote Naphtali, and we visited, um, we visited Tel Dan, which is one of the first places that Joshua would have led the Israelites to conquer from the Canaanites. Uh, we visited that spot there, and there's some ancient ruins. And then we stayed in remote Naphtali, where one morning we, uh, we uh, were drinking coffee, and we heard artillery being fired there near the Lebanese border. But it wasn't a conflict. I think they were just target practicing which is still a little bit disconcerting. But anyway, so we, from there we crossed over the Holda Valley and we went into like the, the foothills of the Golan Heights and we drove over to a place called Banyas. 
And Banias is a natural, uh, uh, national park that is sanctioned by the Israeli government. Um, and there in Banias is an ancient temple to the god of Pan. And it used to be called Panias, but then it over time evolved to Banias. And this is uh, also ancient Caesarea Philippi, if you recall that from the New Testament as well. And there we did some walking around, some hiking, and we found an old Syrian tank that was rolled upside down, down in the stream, in the, in the stream of Hermon. And um, beautiful, beautiful area. And um, then from there we backtracked and we moved back to the west and we visited, uh, we visited, where did we go? Um, after Banyas, the place with all the springs blowing through the woods. Tell Dan, yeah, Tell Dan. Did I say Tell Dan already? Went to Tell Dan, and that was that was a beautiful place as well. And then we checked back into our uh, our little uh, little cabin there. From there, we woke up the next morning and we drove way way south along Highway 90 and went all the way down to the southernmost part of the Dead Sea. And the topography and the climate and the weather changed drastically. It was suddenly very very hot and the salty air from the Dead Sea. Um, and we did a Dead Sea swim and all that stuff and, and did everything you're supposed to do at the Dead Sea. Um, the next day, we went up to uh, Ein Gedi. We did Ein Gedi, and then we did uh, Masada in that area. And so if those names of places don't mean anything to you, they're, they're rich and packed with history and stories, and uh, it just means that you need to go to the land and visit those places. Uh, and then we spent Shabbat down here in a little kibbutz on the southern tip of the Dead Sea, as far south as you can go in the Dead Sea, in a little kibbutz called Nevi Zohar. And, uh, and then we went up north of that, just about three to five miles, to a, a little resort town called Ein Bokek. And in Ein Bokek, just to the west of Ein Bokek, there is a spring that comes out of the mountains, out of the hills of the deserts of Judea. And the spring flows through these mountains and it pours into the Dead Sea. Well, you can hike up into the stream, up into the mountains, and you're in the middle of the desert, bare and bare and very hot desert, no water around, but there's this spring water that's trickling out of the mountains and you can hike up into that. And the, um, all the, all the um, landscape is beautiful, there's trees, it's like a little oasis that you hike up into, there's waterfalls. And so um, we did that and then we made it back, we went back to Jerusalem and we checked into the hostel there again and spent another night in Jerusalem. And we just kind of lounged around Jerusalem one night and just sat in Zion Square and people watched for a long time and talked to people and got to know people a lot better. And then the following morning we, uh, we flew out. So we saw a lot of different places, met a ton of different people, and uh, it was a jam-packed trip, but it was also times of just kind of relaxing as well and just taking in the sights and, and uh, the sounds of Israel. Um, and a lot of you asked me the same question as well. You asked me, uh, how was the trip? And then a lot of you asked me, what was your favorite part? And I've got to say, um, I saw a lot of amazing things. And it's hard to pick one thing. And some things I saw on this trip that I hadn't seen on a prior trip. But um, probably my favorite thing was just talking to Israelis. The last trip I went on, I didn't really inter, uh, mingle with Israelis that much. And this trip, I did. Probably, probably 18 to 20 different Israelis that I had good deep conversations with and uh, if you've been to Israel or you know Israelis you know that if you solicit for an opinion from an Israeli they will definitely give you an opinion about something right so uh, I talked politics talked religion talked all kinds of stuff about about you know their, their everyday life living in Israel and uh, kind of wanted and that was as much as like biblical sites were on my list sitting in a remote Israeli town and eating the food that they eat and shopping at a grocery store at which they shop at and talking to real Israelis off the beaten path, that was on my list of this trip and I feel like we really succeeded in doing that. And the reason why is because I wanted to get my finger on the pulse of Israeli culture and politics and economics and kind of figure out like what's going on in Israel right now because that's at the center of God's plan for all of humanity is the nation and the people of Israel, right? And that's what scripture revolves around that, that family right now. And so I wanted to get to know that family better and where they're at, where we're kind of at on that timeline. And um, like, I, I, one of the neatest features um, was going up on top of Masada. If you don't know the history of Masada, you're losing out. You gotta study the history of Masada. But going up on top of Masada, there's an ancient synagogue on top of Masada. And then inside that synagogue, there's a miniature synagogue that's modern. 
and it's got air conditioning. It's crazy. You walk in there, you can feel the air conditioning coming out. And inside that synagogue, there is a man who's writing a Torah scroll continuously. Uh, not like all night long or anything. But he's, writing, he's up there every day writing a Torah scroll. And you can, you can commission, you can pay him to write a Torah scroll you know, in, the, in the memory of someone or whatever. And uh, that's all he does up there. He just writes Torah scrolls. So just watch this scribe and kind of literally look over his shoulder as he's up there penning the, the words of scripture from an ancient, inside an ancient synagogue in, the, in an ancient fortress in the Judean desert on the coast of the Dead Sea. It's just surreal. It just feels so, so strange. But it's like um, what we said the prayer, it says, and the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The Torah will go forth. More of these Torah scrolls are being written today than ever in Jewish history. So to be able to witness that and to see, you know, we have our Torah scroll here and we, we, we get it out and read it occasionally. But to see a scribe writing it with a feather quill is just something that puts it on a whole other level. Are they writing so on that was, skin or Yeah, writing on calf skin. Yeah, so that was a really neat experience. And he was really gracious to allow us to take uh, photos there. But another cool experience I had was I met Israeli Anthony. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And very nice guy, and I'm sure his volleyball skills were on a whole other level than Anthony's were. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not, not that it's like a really big achievement, but um, I wish you guys could see that picture better. But we were talking to this young man, and he was there hiking in, in the National Park, at Banyas National Park. And he reminded me so much of Anthony, just in his mannerisms and everything. And uh, I actually got a video of him talking and greeting Anthony in Hebrew and then in English. So I'm not going to play that for you today, but I'll play it for Anthony later. But... Yeah, he just seemed like a really upstanding man. And um, so you, Anthony has a bizarro over in is, Israel. And, uh, but just meeting guys like that and talking to them um, and getting to know the people better. Um, Israel is uh, interesting. is way too small of a word to use. There's just a lot of intensity going on in Israel right now. Intensity in economics and politics and religion. Um, you know, just for instance, I, my... my, my Flights over there were bookended with, I was sitting next to an, an Orthodox woman who is very open and talkative about her faith and what is going on in Israel. She was like a fourth generation Israeli native. And um, her, her family originally was from Morocco. They were Moroccan Jews that made Aliyah to Israel in the early 40s. So full of all kinds of good stories and everything and, and sharing about her faith. And then on the flight back, Stacy and I were sitting next to a conservative rabbi's daughter. And she was very inquisitive and open about her faith and inquisitive about our faith. And both were just, both of those ladies that we were sitting next to were very astonished that we had such a love for Israel and such a concern for Israel. And were taken aback that there are people, that there are followers of Christ, of Yeshua, who are making this journey over to, to just experience the land and experience the culture and the people. And they were honored by that. But they're also, you know, kind of like inquisitive of that and, and, and curious as to why that is. Um, Israel is going through a lot of metamorphosis right now as a nation. Um, when Israel was founded originally, it was founded primarily as a secular nation. Uh, it wasn't founded as a theocracy and the laws were not based upon the Torah or God's word or anything like that. And it didn't even come up with a constitution. Israel does not have a constitution. It's all based on case law. And Ben-Gurion set aside and allotted for, I think it was 500 Orthodox men to be on the public dole and receive welfare, to be able to study Torah full time. And then as, those, as those, that population grew and grew, they gained more and more influence in the government. So now there's an entire uh, sector, entire people group and demographic within Israel that lives on the public welfare system. And all they do is study Torah and they're, they're, they're exempt from serving in the IDF. And so you have that group of people, and then you have people that are, that are completely secular, living in Israel, that don't even believe in God, and they, believe, they, they live in Israel, and they dislike the people that are on the public welfare system who are studying the Torah. And then you have people that are somewhere in the middle, and then you have Christians, and then you have Muslims, you have Arabs, and it's just a big, big, tense melting pot of people. And tense is like the best word I can describe right now, what it's like. And I don't, I don't mean like unsafe, because I want you guys to go to Israel. Don't hear unsafe. Just hear that things are kind of churning and it's tense and, and something has to change. It's not sustainable. And I don't know what it will look like, how it will all play out, but something will change. 
then I was talking to one um, Israeli, actually I asked this question of two different Israelis, is I, I was in Israel five years ago, and coming five years later back to Israel, I just noticed so many more religious people, religious Jews walking around the streets, you know, like, like Orthodox Jews. I just noticed there were so many more. And I asked two different Israelis, is Israel getting more religious? Like, is there more observant Jews in Israel than ever before? And they said, yes, absolutely yes. And this person I was asking, one um, who was actually an atheist, and he was actually talking about it in a negative way. Like, yes, they, it, Israel is getting more religious, and I, I don't like that. And the other person I asked that question, they were religious, and they said, yes, it is getting more religious, and I like that, because um, this young lady identified as a Zionist Jew who believed that Israel should be expanding its borders to what is laid out in Scripture in the Torah and, and creating settlements in different parts that are like kind of contested areas of Israel. And in those settlements, they grow the population and kind of lay claim, kind of like manifest destiny. Um, so there's a lot of tension going on. And then that religious demographic that is growing within Israel is getting more and more political influence and power within the government. And Netanyahu, the prime minister, Bibi Netanyahu, is catering more and kind of leans a little bit more to that religious right and is reforming some of the aspects of the Israeli government right now to appease that religious right. And it's interesting because that's what all the protests are about in Israel right now. If you're watching the news, there's a lot of protests going on in the streets and everything. Although we didn't see any of it going on, there, there is a lot of that going on. And there's kind of this seismic shift culturally and religiously right now in Israel. And so I have mixed feelings about it. Because, you know, I see Israel as being the apple of God's eye and the, kind of the, the, the light to all the nations. But to establish, and, and here's the end goal of the religious right, is to establish a theocracy within Israel. To establish a government that will outlaw driving on Shabbat or that will outlaw eating unkosher. Um, and that will mandate, much like Sharia law in some Muslim countries, would mandate and make the law of the land the Torah. At least their interpretation of the Torah. And I have mixed feelings about that. Not because I don't think the Torah is good and not because God's word is timeless. But because to do that without a righteous king, to do that without Yeshua, I feel like it's not going to work out in the long run. So I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, I want Israel to be safe and I want, to, I want her to thrive, but I, I also want her to see and acknowledge and believe in her Messiah. Um, and Paul says when that happens, it'll be like life from the dead. But also I got a sense in Israel after talking to Israelis that there is a deep hunger in Israelis and even within the religious, there is a deep hunger for revelation, for insights. I was talking to one lady who is an Orthodox woman and she was kind of on the periphery of the Chabad movement. If you don't know about the Chabad movement, it's a, it's a movement that was started by, uh, well not started by, but led at some time by Rebbe Menachem Schneerson, who was based out of Crown Heights, New York. And which is funny because if you're driving, if you're driving along uh, Highway 90, along the Jordan River Valley, literally guys, for 90 miles, every single sign on the side of the road, on the back of that sign, has a poster, on the, the picture on the poster is Menachem Schneerson, the Rebbe, the Babacher Rebbe of the Chabad movement. It's a picture of him, and then in Hebrew, it says, Behold, the King Messiah. Every single sign for like 90 miles. They, the, the Chabad movement believes that he is the Messiah. Just to give you an idea. Well, this lady was saying, she's like, yeah, you know, we can actually talk to the Rebbe. And I'm like, that's weird because the Rebbe's dead. <laughs> We're not supposed to talk to dead people, right? That's not, it's no bueno according to God's word. And I was like, really? How do you do that? How do you talk to the Rebbe? And she said, the Rebbe wrote these letters many years ago. And they were compiled into a book. And so you can go to a rabbi who is trained in doing this. And if you have a problem, like a problem at your job or relationship problem, or, or you're, you're unable to uh, conceive children, you can go to the rabbi who is trained in doing this, and you can present to them the problem, 
And then the rabbi says that you're supposed to speak the problem out loud. You're supposed to talk to the Rebbe and say, Rebbe, uh, I am having a hard time conceiving children. And then he opens the book with all the letters in it. And the whatever he opens to, that letter is for you from the Rebbe. And she was speaking of it very highly. Like, yes, this is something that is so amazing. I've heard people come away with amazing revelations from the Rebbe. But you can sense in her voice this deep, deep hunger for a connection to God. And, and going about trying to fulfill that hunger and that craving in the wrong way. Talking to someone who is deceased, who is not even the Messiah. Probably was a great man, but is not the Mashiach. But you kind of get that feel like there is a hunger for something in Israel. And if you open your Bibles to Genesis 43, that lands us perfectly where we're at with the story of Joseph. Because... Joseph was the keeper and the preserver of bread. And Joseph is, in my opinion, one of the most uh, typographical figures in Scripture that points to the life of Yeshua of Nazareth. In other words, he gives us the most hints and clues of any other figure in Scripture of the role of the Messiah coming as the suffering servant. So Yeshua is a, is a symbol of, I'm sorry, Yosef is a symbol of Yeshua in this story, in this narrative. We've been talking about that over and over, right? And it says in Genesis 43, and to set the stage a little bit, if you remember, Joseph has been sold into Egypt. His name has changed to Zathnath Paneah through a series of different events and interpreting dreams. He's elevated to number two in all of Egypt. He preserves bread, right? And... His brothers are in the land of Canaan with their father. The brothers that deserted him, that abandoned him, that betrayed him. And guess what happens? His brothers get hungry. Now bread in scripture, and even in this story, is always a picture of what? What? Say louder. Yeshua? Yeah. Scripture. Scripture. Bread is always a picture of the revelation of Scripture, God's special revelation to mankind. And it says here in chapter 43, but the famine was so severe in the land. So when they had eaten up all the grain which they had brought out of Egypt, their father said to them, go again and buy us a little food. Now, this, this word famine here in Hebrew is ra'av, ra'av. The first time we see this word used is in back in Genesis chapter 12. Turn, turn there with me. Genesis 12, verse 10. Genesis 12, 10. Genesis 12, 10. It says, but there was a ra'av, a famine in the land. So Avram went down to Egypt to stay there because the famine was so severe. The second time we see this being used is in Genesis 26. Turn there with me. Genesis 26. My Bible's a lot of order here. Genesis 26. Somebody read for me Genesis 26.1. Famine came over the land, not the same as the first famine, which had taken place when Abraham was alive. Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. So you see the pattern here. The first time it's used, Avraham is, he becomes a refugee, and he has to flee to Egypt to look for food. And the same thing happens. God uses famine to move his people around where he wants them to be moved around to. Now, this story, I believe, that we're reading in Genesis chapter 43 is prophetic. It talks about something that will happen in the future. Now, it would only be natural if one of the prophets in the, in the Bible spoke about a future famine that is to come. So turn with me to Amos chapter 8. Amos 8, verse 11. Amos 8, 11. You guys there? I know it's a book we don't really go to very often. You can use a table of contents, no shame. Amos 8.11. This is uh, one of the minor prophets. 
Amos 8.11. The time is coming, says Adonai Elohim, when I will send a ra'av over the land. And here it is. Uh, let me see if I can play it for you guys in the, or, or show it to you in the original language here. Oh, let me see that. He says in Hebrew, the, uh, the days are coming. Na'um Adonai Hashem, And it says that he's sending, God is sending in these days, he's sending Vahishalakti. He's sending a ra'av, a famine, ba'aretz in the land. Lo, it's not ra'av, it's not going to be a famine, lalechem, of bread. It's not going to be a famine where people are lacking bread. But rather in Velo Zama Lamaim, where they're thirsting water. So this famine that I'm going to send in the last days, it will not be a famine where people are hungry for bread. It will not be a famine where people are a lack of water. But what kind of famine will it be? Ki'im l'shema et direi Adonai. It will be a famine of the hearing of God's word. Wow. United States of America, anybody? (laughs) It's not a famine for lack of bread or for the taste of water, but of the hearing of God's word, the shemaing of God's word, where people will not hear and do God's word. It will be accessible to them, but they won't hear it. And faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing the word of God, right? And Yeshua says, Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Because why? They will be filled. Yeah. So go back to Genesis 43. Genesis 43. It says, There was a famine so severe in the land, and when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought out of Egypt, their father said to them, Go again and buy us a little food. So you see the prophetic significance of this is that in the last days, the people of Israel and the world... Will be, there will be a famine for the hearing and the doing of God's word. And Judah said to him, the man, Yosef, he doesn't know his name is Yosef yet. He doesn't know that it's his brother. But he says, the man expressly warned us, you will not see my panim, my face, unless your brother is with you. This reminds me of Matthew 23, 39. Yeshua says, you will not see my face again until you say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So you see that what's being set up here is a story that's pointing to a big prophetic fulfillment down the road in the last days where there's hunger of the, the people of Israel, specifically the Jewish people. Yeshua says, Yeshua says to his disciples, go first to Judea and Samaria, Shamron, right? Be my witnesses to them, right? To the Jew first, Paul says, and then to the Greek. He says in verse 4, If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. And Israel said, why did you bring such trouble my way by telling this man you had another brother? And they answered, the man kept questioning us about ourselves and about our kinsmen. And he asked, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And we answered according to the literal meaning of his questions. How are we to know? He would say, bring your brother down here. You see, um... Jacob does not want to lose one more son, does he? He's already living and has had to live under the grief of losing Joseph, hasn't he? In verse 8, he says, Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will make preparations and leave, so that we may stay alive and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. Now listen, three things I want you to catch right here. Judah says... I myself will guarantee his safety. You can, number two, hold me responsible. If I fail to bring him to you and present him to your face, this is the third part I want you to catch. Let me bear the blame forever. Now, does that sound like the Judah that betrayed Joseph and put him in a pit and sold him for silver to the Ishmaelites? It doesn't. And I told you a few weeks ago that I think we're supposed to look at this narrative Yes, Yosef is a, is a picture of Yeshua, but also 
Sometimes we make Yosef the main character. But what if all of, the, all, all of Yosef's events and the suffering that he had to go through and his betrayal and his imprisonment and then his elevation to the Savior of the world, what if that was all to, to, yes, save the world, but even before that and primarily bring Judah to a place of repentance and to, to change Judah's heart? And here is the test. And he passed the test. I myself will guarantee his safety. Hold me responsible. Let me bear the blame. These are evidences of a change of heart in Judah. It's no longer all about Judah, is it? Remember Judah, the guy that, that, that threw uh, Yosef in a pit and sold him for... Remember Judah, the guy that, that paid um, for Tamar and that was seeking prostitutes? Judah has had a change of heart. See, now for Judah, it's all about preserving my family. Now for Judah, it's all about not myself, but my lineage. Now it's all about preserving the promises that were given to my family by God that my descendants would be as numerous as the grains of the sand and the stars of the sky. I believe that now, and now I need to take some practical steps to get us there to where we can survive so that can be made true. But this is also kind of the potential atonement for the betrayal of Yosef. In other words, he's setting, him up, setting himself up to say, you know what? I will die in the place of Benjamin. You can hold me responsible now. In other words, I unknowingly am atoning for what I did and the sin I committed against Joseph and his betrayal. And he says, except for our lengthy delay, we would have been there again by now. Now, this is interesting. I, I found a commentary by um, uh, a teacher named Ardell Brody. And uh, she points out, that there's these laws in the book of Exodus, chapter 22, verse 10. And these laws lay out if a man uh, or any, if someone entrusts someone, like their animal, and the animal gets torn apart by, by, uh, by a wild animal. It says, if a man delivers his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any animal to keep and it dies, is hurt or driven away, no one's seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods. And the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not, and he shall make it good, and not make it good. These verses teach that the keeper of an animal which mysteriously goes missing cannot take an oath swearing that he had nothing to do with its disappearance, thus validating his innocence and relieving him from any guilt of obligation to reimburse. The book of Exodus continues then with the laws for the shepherd in Exodus 22:13. If the animal is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make good what was torn. Now, what did, um, what did the brothers bring Jacob to prove that Joseph had died? His torn, his torn coat of many colors, right? And then what did Jacob say? He has been torn to pieces by a wild animal. A shepherd has a special law in this regard. If a shepherd is given sheep to watch, and one of the sheep is mauled by a wild animal, it is not by means of an oath that he may absolve himself of responsibility. Rather, he must bring evidence of the attack. And once he has done this, he shows that he did not personally dispose of or sell that animal, but it was set upon by, but it was, it was set upon by wild animals, and he bears no guilt for its disappearance. And we can see in the story of Joseph that the brothers, according to the laws of the shepherd, in Exodus chapter 22, they take this evidence to their father, remember? And they took Joseph's tunic, they killed a goat, and they dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. And a wild beast has devoured him. Without, without doubt, Jacob says, Joseph has been torn to pieces. And it uses the same Hebrew terminology, taraf yosef. He has torn, they have torn Joseph, as it does back in Exodus chapter 22. So the brothers used this law to entirely acquit themselves of any guilt associated with the disappearance of Joseph. However, this was not Jacob's personal ethic. Earlier, Jacob spoke of a similar shepherding situation in regards to the shepherding his sheep for Lavan. Is you remember that? In Genesis 31. He says, that which was torn, he's speaking to Laban, that which was terephah, by beasts, I did not bring to you, I bore the loss myself. 
You see what Jacob's doing there? So in other words, Jacob could have brought the animal torn to pieces and said, now I'm guilt-free, I don't have to give you anything. But what did he, he didn't do that. Jacob says, I just bore the loss. As he's speaking to Jacob, uh, Laban, I'm sorry. You see, Jacob always paid the price for animals that were torn by beasts as if he was personally responsible. He went over and above the Torah requir requirements. So let's compare the similar phrasing and how Jacob spoke of his commandment to Laban with Judah's promise to his father. In Genesis 31, 39, it says, I bore the loss of it, Jacob says to Laban. You required it from my hand. And then in, G in Genesis 43, verse 9, now Judah says, I myself will be surety for him. From my hand, you shall require him. So through his words, Judah shows his father that he has adopted his father's personal standard of responsibility. And Jacob knows that Judah will use every effort to safeguard Benjamin. There will be no excuses like there was with Joseph. Judah is expressing tremendous faithfulness for the father's son. And for Judah, the thought of abandoning Benjamin in Egypt would be a continuation of the grievous sin of selling Joseph. Protecting Benjamin at all costs is the atonement demanded for selling Joseph, a heaven-sent opportunity to make amends. And Judah shows that he has adopted his father's standards. I thought that was a good commentary on that section there. But let's keep reading. It says, Their father Israel answered them, If that's how it is, then do this. Take in your containers some of the land's best products and bring the man a gift. Some healing resin, a little honey, aromatic gum, opium, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take twice the amount of money with you and return the money that came back with you in your packs. If you, it, it could have been an oversight. Now, um, last Friday when we landed in Israel, we got into Jerusalem. We went into the Mahane Yehuda markets in Jerusalem, which is north and west of the old city. And we went there on a Friday afternoon. Has anyone ever been to the, the Mahane Yehuda, or it's sometimes called the Shuk? Anybody ever been to that? Okay. If you go, don't go on a Friday afternoon when everybody's shopping for Shabbat. <laughs> it was a madhouse. People were just shoulder to shoulder. And we were, like, Stacy and Noah and I were make, like, we had to really focus on just staying where we could see each other in this crowd, this massive horde of people. But in this market are just an abundance of the land's produce where you have these almonds and pistachios and, and dates and all kinds of spices. And you can just smell the market and the air of it. And it's amazing. But Jacob is saying, bring some of that to this man in Egypt. Take twice the amount of money with you. In verse 13, yes, and take your brothers too, or take your brother Benjamin too, and get ready and go to the man. And may El Shaddai, which is one of the names of God, give you favor in the man's sight, so that he will release you to your other brother as well as Benjamin. As for me, if I must lose my children, lose them I will. The man took that gift, and they took twice the money with him, and Benjamin. Then they prepared and went down to Egypt and stood before who they think is Zophnaf Paneah, but in reality is their brother, Yosef. And this again is prophetic, speaking prophetically, that when the Jewish people today in Israel stand and are presented with Jesus Christ, especially like the Sacred Heart Jesus from the Roman Catholic Church or whatever, when they are presented with a picture or an idea or an ideology that has been misrepresented in, on, in the name of Yeshua, they are turned off by that. They don't see their brother. They don't see their Mashiach. But rather they see an invention of the Gentile world or whatever. They see someone who started a new religion. And that religion then perpetrated a lot of heinous crimes against their people. That's what they see. And so this is very prophetic that there's this veil in front of Joseph's brother's eyes where they cannot even identify and recognize their own brother whom they betrayed. And it says, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his household manager, take the men inside the house, kill the animals and prepare the meat. And these men will dine with me at noon. So the men did as, the man did as Joseph ordered and brought the men into Joseph's house. Upon being ushered inside Joseph's house, the men became fearful 
And they said, it's because of the money that was returned in our packs the first time that we've been brought inside so that he can use it as an excuse to attack us, take us as slaves and seize our donkeys too. So they approached the manager of Joseph's household and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. Please, Adoni, my Lord, the first time we indeed came down to buy food, but when we got up to camp, we opened our packs and there inside our packs was each man's money, the full amounts. We brought it back with us. Moreover, we brought down other money to buy food. We have no idea who put our money in our packs. Stop worrying, he replied. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father put treasure in your packs. And as for your money, I was the one who received it. And then he brought Shimon out to them. And the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and washed their feet. And he provided fodder for their donkeys. Now, that should have been the first tip-off, the washing of the feet there. That's what their fathers did, right? That's what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob do to their guests. Then they got their gift ready for Joseph's arrival at noon. And they had heard that they were going to eat a meal there. And when Joseph arrived home, they went in the house and presented him with the gift that they had brought him. Then they prostrated themselves before him on the ground. And he asked them how they were and inquired, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, your servant, our father, is well. Yes, he is still alive. And they bowed down in respect. He looked up and saw Benjamin, his brother, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And added, may God be good to you, my son. Then Yosef hurried out because his feelings toward his brother were so strong that he wanted to cry. He went into his bedroom and there he wept. And he washed his face and he came out he controlled himself as he gave the order to serve the meal. Now, this is like a picture of what we would call later the marriage supper of the lamb. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians included at the meal by themselves. The Egyptians don't eat with the Hebrews because that would be abhorrent to them. So they sat there facing him, the firstborn in the place of honor, the youngest in the last place, and the men expressed their amazement to each other. Each was given his serving there in front of him. But Benjamin's portion was five times as large as any of theirs. So they drank and they enjoyed themselves with him. Now there's this interesting dynamic in scripture that I, I don't fully understand, but maybe you guys can teach me. Between Benjamin and Judah, Benjamin and Judah, there's sometimes this interesting dynamic that I don't fully understand because you have Benjamin and Judah here that have this dynamic going on. One is, one is um, uh, appealing to the other or vying for the other or whatever. I mean, you have David, a son of Judah, a descendant of Judah. And then you have Saul and his son Jonathan, Benjamites. And then you have Yeshua, a descendant of Judah. And then you have who? A Benjamite, Paul, appealing to the validity of Yeshua's testimony. This interesting dynamic that's going on in Scripture. I don't fully understand it, but maybe I will one day. But these, um, these, these passages are so loaded with prophetic significance when it comes to the end times. And we could spend, we could just bog down in verse after verse and talking about these. But I want one point to be drawn out, and that is... There is coming a time when the people of Israel, when the Jewish people are so hungry for revelation and truth that they will seek out this truth from a myriad of different places. And they will eventually settle on the truth. That is Yeshua who says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. But until then there's going to be this awkward dynamic between predominantly Gentile believers in Messiah and the Jewish people. As Paul says, as a degree of hardening has come over them. But we have to remember that there has been a really, really tense uh, and strenuous relationship between the Gentile body of Messiah, which is predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish, and the Jewish people. There has been 2,000 years of 
heinous acts committed against the Jewish people in the name of Christ. Many Jews that come to faith are A, either irreligious, that come to faith in Yeshua, are either irreligious altogether, or B, they're religious and they have a miraculous encounter or supernatural encounter with Yeshua. One that they just cannot deny. Um, I've got a video up here, and I'm going to play just a couple minutes of it. This man is a... Um, He's actually a, a Jewish believer, and he's interviewing Orthodox Jews on Jaffa Street, right outside the Jaffa Gate. And I was walking down this street where they're standing just last Shabbat. But I think the sound might work here. I think Anthony's on the... Uh... Oh, I went too far. Anthony, are you there at the laptop? And so can you take over and hit play on that video for me? Yeah. We're just going to play like five to ten minutes, and then we'll do some, uh, some questions and answers. I'm standing out in front of the walls of Jerusalem, a city historically known for hostility towards Jesus. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So I'm a Jewish man that believes in Jesus. Let's go see what the people of Jerusalem have to say about it. Okay, so I'm a Jewish man, and I believe in Jesus. Am I, am I wrong? You are, yes. Yes? No, no, tell me, I'm not going to be offended. I just want to know why and have an intellectual conversation. Okay, I'm a Jewish man. Okay. I believe in Jesus. Okay. Am I wrong? Yeah. Tell me how. It makes absolutely zero sense, because if you're Jewish, you should learn about your own roots first. Can you hear what the Jews are? What's that? Did you had Yeshua five years ago? An experience, yeah, salvation story. Story? What about the story? Of course. So five years ago, I had an encounter with Jesus that I wasn't expecting. I wasn't expecting it. I was miserable, depressed, anxious, and suicidal. And I felt empty. So I tried to fill it up with uh, new age spirituality, meditation, bits and pieces of Buddhism, Hinduism, idol worship. I had my own made up religion. And I realized that I needed something more. And when I finally crumbled and fell to the floor, I cried out to God and Jesus showed up. He showed up in people, he showed up in books, he showed up in television programs, and I started to weep. And so, what I realized was that this is the truth. And so I put my faith in Yeshua, I was changed overnight, and I, I decided to research the scriptures, the Old Testament, and well, the Tanakh, our Hebrew scriptures, and realized that they were pointing to someone. The whole time they were pointing to someone, and then when I read the New Testament, I was like bold enough to finally open it and, and read through it. I realized there's a beautiful story from beginning to end about the problem that the Jewish people had with their with relationship with God. And in the New Testament, how God fixed the problem by sending the Mashiach. Yeah. So five years studying my faith, realizing that this is the truth. And so it was just a simple question of, am I, am I wrong? And if I'm wrong, just your opinion as to why, and that's all. Just to have a, a, just a dialogue between Jewish brothers. And I appreciate you stopping by. I mean, yeah. it, takes, it takes courage. No, I like having a good time. So yeah. Part of my good time today. Like, why would I be wrong? Um, and first of all, I appreciate you stopping because. Uh, is, is it possible to have reached for two different, you know, things, different conclusions that have been made by different, uh, by different people, I guess? Absolutely. You and, and someone else? Yeah, like, some of, like most traditional Jews would say that I'm wrong. Right. Yeah, and, and that it's not, it's, not, it's not appropriate, it's not right for a Jewish person to put their faith in Yeshua. Only God alone. Shema Yisrael Amar Yehudah Amar Okay, it's the Shema. God is one, He's not a man, like it says in uh, Hosea. But, you know, when we, you know, you know, certainly with the story of Genesis, right, the Breshit, where God appears to Abraham as a human. He's with two angels, and He appears as a human. And speaks to to Abraham right. in nice first shit. person, yeah, right. in first person, as God. Uh, I, I don't know. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. And so and so he 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 has appeared. He has appeared as in human form in the past. So he can do it without being only human. So you 
big, right? If 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 you right, I guess I see how if you see that that main that main mouth who speaks to Avram, right. first person, which, yeah, Rashi, 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 whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, 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 there's a main officer, and there's two, there's two, um, there's two other um, angels. Yeah. So I guess where I'm coming from. Go, go, go. I guess where I'm coming from, under the understanding or idea that you know those are all three were angels, and I wasn't necessarily a, I believe in angels right. and God's messengers. Right. Without, yeah. I guess without seeing that that was God, I I can't agree yeah. to the point that I wouldn't be able to agree to the point yeah. that God is. But there's because there are times in the in the Tanakh where he actually speaks in first person as the Lord, like he speaks in first person. We should check it out. How could I believe that you're wrong? I can. We have belief. Truth is truth. Right. Right. So I've always been a fan of looking for truth with truth. Okay. And we want to look for truth in a way that's self-serving, that works, you know, I like this. Right. What I believe is that everyone has a journey in life. And the only way to search for that journey is to search for it with truth. That means look for truth with truth. Right. What's in the way of this? Yeah. We have our biases. And we have natural well, human beings that right. have a bias. Right, right. Did you know that I grew up and my bias was against Jesus? Yeah, obviously. Yeah, but I came to faith in him through a supernatural experience. Yeah. I totally understand that. Yeah, yeah. I expect that. I have a lot of experience with people, with people like that. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to say something. There's, there's, you need, we need to go to a direction that takes us to inner tranquility, mm. to a place where we can actually find the truth. So that's really interesting because Jesus himself actually said that he is the truth. So I believe that actually a, a, if someone is seeking truth, and if they seek with their heart, and they seek long enough, that they will find it in Jesus. Anthony, you want to pause it there for me? Hey guys. Uh, the, the video is like 18 minutes long, and he interviews like a dozen or so uh, religious Jews walking through the Java Gate there. But what do you guys think? Um, <laughs> it's interesting how the one guy, he's like, well, Rashi says it's not this, it's this. And it's like a lot of, a lot of the Orthodox can't see Yeshua because as Mashiach because of some of their their hurdles that they've put up, the walls that they've built up in their interpretation of the text. And, and later on, an older Orthodox man says in the video, you can't be looking into scripture without without the help and the assistance of a rabbi. He's like, what you're doing is dangerous <laughs> uh, because you're going to come to some faulty conclusions. So um, I believe in the plain reading of scripture. God makes it very plain and accessible to people. It's very deep, but it's also very, very accessible. But um, let's, uh, let's do this closing prayer, and then we'll take about five minutes for Q&A and comments that you guys have. Father, I thank you for Yeshua, and I thank you that your word is true, and that you are faithful to the Jewish people and to the, the nation of Israel. I thank you that you have grafted so many in from the nations, as your word says, that, that many of the nations would put their hope and faith in your Mashiach. And Father, I just pray right now that you would speedily come in our day, and that you would bring a true repentance within Judah. And Father, just help us to live out your precepts. Help us to exemplify his love and his heart in the meantime. And I pray this in his matchless name. Amen.